For those of you who, uh, who happen to listen to the in-between podcast, the one we do of our uh, Sunday morning preparation meeting on Tuesday mornings, um, <clears throat> this week we were looking at these passages that are coming up, and they're pretty dark. Um, they're going to be a little tough to, to work through this little section of Second Peter about judgment and condemnation and that kind of stuff. And, and so as we're talking about it, uh, John says, on the, on the, if you listen to the podcast, John's like, I, I have no idea what we're going to do for worship. Music. I'm like, I, the music that we use to worship on Sunday morning with these passages, and so I was teasing him this morning, like, so he just went fully the other direction. Like, we're just, we're just celebrating today, fully, full out, no hesitation. Um, so thank you guys. That was fantastic this morning. Um, all right, so as with everything in Second Peter, um, every section is connected to every other section. In fact, Second Peter is really just kind of one long thought, um, that, that you're working through this one thought all the way through, and so to teach a section, we always are probably going to be going back a couple of verses in order to work up a little momentum, to get a little, get a little energy running so that when we hit the verses that we're actually studying today, we're on the right track and on the right pace. So we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All right, so... Peter's saying, look, there are these amazing prophecies, these amazing messages of truth, of reality, and, and let's unpack even just that concept here for a second. We're going to have to spend a couple of minutes here. Understand that the proclamations of God's truth is not a private creation. It's not internally sourced by us. It doesn't depend on anyone to create it. Um, no wonder our culture despises the idea of truth from God. See, in our culture today, we have these concepts called radical autonomy or expressive individualism, in which, in which the teaching is that no one can say anything about me but me. And in fact, I'm the only one who can determine what is true for me. Now, no one gets to do it. I dictate any message that would apply to me, and only I can, and everyone else has to recognize it, respect it, honor it, agree with it, legalize it, and celebrate it. The things that I dictate are true for me. That's got to be true for everybody that it's true for me. This is not the case with prophecy. Actually, truth doesn't care about our opinions. Um, it does not, it's not interested in our opinions. What God proclaims through his actual prophets, his apostles, his messengers, and are then presented to the world is true. And we could all get together and vote that it's not true with 100% unity, and then we would all be wrong. That's how that works. The truth doesn't have to have our approval. We don't have to like it or agree with it. We don't even have to know it. It doesn't have to go along with my will or my interpretation, as the Apostle Peter is saying here. So why submission to the revealed Word of God is the ultimate litmus test for a godly church. See, if we say, if I say, listen, I get to dictate truth for me. And by the way, everyone, probably 60-70% of Americans would now say this, that, that I'm the only one who can proclaim things that are true for me. Not just even just true about me, but true for me. What you claim is true, if it isn't true for me, it's just not true for me. Now, a lot of people claim this. A lot of people make this case. Um, the problem is no one actually lives this way. Um, I'm 100% convinced that if I could or you could just declare what is true for me, there'd be a lot more of us flying. 
I would be. If it was, if it was up to me to choose what was true for me, I would just fly a lot. I mean, just, just like, I mean, I've tried a lot of times. Like, I've put a lot of energy into this. I've read books, and, and there's, this, there's this darn thing that keeps getting in my way when it comes to this, that though I continue to declare myself a flying creature, um, I keep not doing it. And, uh, and, and all my efforts at it from childhood till now, I am still being thwarted by something. And I think maybe that thing is an external truth that I just don't like, and it doesn't care. It doesn't care that I don't like it. It doesn't care that I want to fly. It's not interested. And that's even doubly so when it comes to these prophecies. If we read one of these prophecies, we see this prophecy from God, and we go, I don't like that. I don't like this gospel. We're going to unpack this a little more, but... I mean, we apparently just really hate the gospel of Jesus Christ because we're constantly trying to add stuff to it. We're going to get there, but I mean, what is it about us doing that? That's why this, like I said, submit, submission to the revealed word of God is the ultimate litmus test for the godly church. Now, of course, we don't agree on everything when it comes to this. We may not agree on exactly what everything that's revealed in Scripture means. We're certainly not going to agree on how to apply it, but we at least ought to agree that if we are convinced of something that is in Scripture, we must submit to it as the source of truth and life and godliness. Would we do so? If you knew for sure, let's imagine you knew for absolute certainty that the Holy Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, was teaching you something and saying, here's what you need to be doing or not doing. Would you submit to that teaching? I don't mean could you live it out perfectly. The answer to that is no, you're human. But would you submit to the authority of that? This is a fundamental aspect of reality beyond even just Scripture. Truth means something uncovered. The word aletheia, aletheia. This is, this is, this word means truth. It comes from the root lethe, which means hidden or covered or forgotten, then with an A in front of it, which means not. It's not a part of our understanding. And for any rational thinker in almost all of human history, almost no matter culture you're talking about, truth has been understood to be a standard as independent of our thought. Knowledge was understood to be a correct understanding of the truth. Something outside of us. This modern idea that, that it is us somehow creating truth internally and then projecting it outward is not only super common, it is also delusional. Um, it doesn't really work that way. Life does not work that way. Reality does not work that way. And for all of human history, until just recently, when we've gotten oh so smart, every other human has known that. Almost every era of human history would call us nuts for even trying to make the claim that we create truth for ourselves. Um, so this is, this is, you're going to see Peter get really worked up during this chapter, by the way. Um, one commentary I, said, I read sees Peter's emotions growing in the tone and pace and language of this passage. And you can see why. Think about what Peter has paid for the gospel. Think about what he's willing to pay for the gospel and what people coming along and changing it and adding things to it, what, what emotions those are going to create in him. One of the things for you to know that's kind of intriguing, Hebrew and Aramaic, so the Bible's written in three languages in the original that we know of, um, Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. Hebrew and Aramaic have no punctuation. Um, imagine that. Imagine trying to read something with no punctuation. 
Um, and so it's really challenging to do so. Now, this was, those were both spoken uh, languages and memorized languages, and so writing it down was not super common. Reading and writing was not the highest and most important aspect of this. The Greek language, though written, has some punctuation, but it's inconsistent. Um, and in the Scriptures, very often it's inconsistent, especially because of the way it was written. Um, this passage that we're going to look at today feels like one breath. It's just a straight concept. All the punctuation has been added in later for our sake. It wasn't there originally. So it might be reasonable to make this one long sentence with a whole bunch of connecting and, 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 and. You're going to see this when I read it. And, and, and. So Peter says we must pay attention to the messages from God, but before we just start applying these messages from God that anyone claims is a message from God, he wants us to be warned. That not everything that pretends to be a message from God is a message from God. Ready? Chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. I forgot to take a deep breath. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So again, not every passage in the Bible is happy, happy, joy, joy. There is real judgment revealed in Scripture. There is real anger at injustice and evil. And these next few verses are going to emphasize that. It's good for us to be prepared for that. See, this is going to be a life-saving message. I mentioned in the first service that I feel like <coughs> most of Scripture can be divided into two headings, which are really kind of one heading, but divided out for us in this way. They are life-giving or they are life-saving. And so life-giving are the past, just like the beginning of chapter 1. Listen, God has revealed these things. He's got this great gift for you of, 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 of abundant life. The zoe, uh, that's the Greek word for this, this abundant life, this meaningful life of value and significance and godliness to live it out the way God intends for you. It's very encouraging. It's very life-giving, life-affirming. Then you have passages like chapter 2 that are more like, whoa, 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 stop, nope, nope, nope don't move. You're about to step in something, and it's going to kill you. Don't do it. It's life-saving. It is like, eject, eject, off, go to the side, like jump out. You got to get out of the boat, whatever it is. It's like, this is, this is dangerous. Watch out. Be careful. It's life-saving. And that's what this is. It's warning you. This section is warning us. Avoiding being the wrong side of God's justice. It's, it's amazing when you consider how people keep wanting to add in this stuff. They keep wanting to add this on. Like if you, have, if, you, if you had a sick child and a doctor told you, here, there's the one way to treat this child. We can save this child, but only with this way and stay with this and, and don't do anything else and we can save their life. And then everyone starts tacking on their opinion on how to save your child's life, right? Because after all, they've looked online and they know, they know all the medical information they need. On Facebook, multiple times it's told them that they should, you should be doing this with your child. And, and, you, and it's all these different things are added in. And if you're not careful before long, what happens is the main saving message becomes watered down and it no longer resembles what it used to be. This is what we have continued to do with the gospel for 2,000 years. Peter was already facing it. At the time he's writing this, he's already facing people going, you know what would be really cool is if we added some of this to the whole Jesus thing. And Peter's like, that's, but that's, that's not what Jesus taught. People would say, yeah, but think how cool it would be to add this, though. I mean, there's some cool stuff here. There's some, we could do some really neat things with this. 
But man, if you really think about it, think about how we could unpack this. And this would really serve us much better than your whole, you know, sacrifice for one another message. First, last, last, first thing. Like, ugh. I like the idea of me being first. So well, let's add in something about the gospel that makes me first and makes me special. And we really, I, I think part of it is we're just offended by it. I think as humans, we're offended by the gospel. We're offended by the fact that God's not interested in our opinion. That he's not impressed by our behavior when it comes to the good news. That we come to him and we go, God, I've got this great idea for your gospel. And he goes, wow, that's really cool. I mean, no. No, we're not doing that. Like, no, we're, no, I'm not doing that. But have you thought about this? And yeah, in fact, I did. And that's a ter- it's just the worst. That's a terrible idea. We're not doing your idea. I've got a strategy. I've got the way this is going to work. And this is the only way it's going to work. And all the others tagging all these things on, tacking on, attacking on, attacking on, and it, res- it waters it down. If the gospel, so I, here's what I would say. Eventually, the final product has little resemblance to the actual cure. So I think, I think part of this message is this. Stop adding people and things to the gospel. Stop. Stop doing it. Stop adding movements and politics or opinions to the gospel. Just cut it out. If the gospel as you understand it cannot save the thief on the cross next to Jesus at his crucifixion, then you have changed it too much. Then your gospel is no longer right. If you've tacked on other behaviors and other activities and other, uh, other sacred behaviors or other political views or the way that... Because the man didn't vote, far as I can tell. And he didn't have probably a very strong opinion about the way church politics is supposed to work. And I'm confident he didn't care about the color of our carpet or whatever it happens to be that people love to fight about in churches. And we don't, we don't run into a lot of that here, praise God. But when I see over and over again people adding stuff to the gospel, and I think, wow, the thief on the cross doesn't get to go to heaven anymore because he's not a part of your movement, I think that's a problem. I think you've got something to fix. And the danger that Peter is telling us is not only, not only is your gospel wrong, but now you've become a false prophet. When you start teaching this, you are now a false witness. But false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. So consider that. I mean, think about those of you who have read the Old Testament, you've read the Hebrew Scriptures, how commonly was a problem that the people were pulled off by a false prophet, that they, were, that they pulled them off topic, that like the voice over here, and they're like, oh, we're following Yahweh, we're following Oh, that sounds really interesting. What is that guy saying over there? I might, we might follow him instead. I think we might do what this person said over here, or this message, or this over here, this religion over here, and they're, they're chasing around whoever the most recent and most... That happened with the Hebrews all the time, doesn't it? When you read through Scripture. It's like every other generation, at least. Peter says, well, there's going to be false teachers among you just like that. All around. They're always there. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. I'm going to unpack that in a second. Even denying the Master. Now, as, as we were talking about this, and some of you got a heads up on this because you did listen to the podcast. As, as we were talking in the midst of this um, Paul made note of this phrase, and, and I had not noticed this. So I just want you, those of you who know Peter, you know who Peter is, right? We know who the Apostle Peter is, most of us, right? Can you imagine that he wrote the phrase, even denying the master who bought them? This isn't me saying this. This is the Apostle Peter, the man most famous in all of human history, for denying his master, uses this phrase. Can we just sit in a, for a minute in what this phrase must have cost Peter to write? 
When you're the Apostle Peter and you reference the lethal danger of denying the master who bought you, that is not nothing for a man like him to write that. Just sit in that for a second. It also struck me as interesting, and I'm not, I'm not, and a sermon is, is, preaching is not a good time to unpack this kind of thing because it takes a lot of hours and digging and that kind of stuff. Um, but there are people who have claimed over the years that Second Peter is a forgery. It doesn't belong in the Bible. And if you want to, you can look up the arguments for and against. Obviously, I'm convinced that it does belong in the Bible, that God has protected the canonization of Scripture, and that, that it does belong here. It is God's holy word inspired by the Holy Spirit. That being said, um, one, of my, one of the commentaries I enjoy by a guy named Ellicott says this about this phrase. This phrase is remarkable as coming from one who himself had denied his master who had bought him. Would a forger have ventured to make St. Peter write this? According to Ellicott, this ends the argument. No forger would ever put these words in the mouth of the Apostle Peter. Only Peter would do it. Only Peter would reference the phrase, the danger that comes with denying the master who bought you. He is certainly the leader of denying the master who bought him. There are always going to be false prophets. Who then says, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. How near to swift destruction do you think the Apostle Peter thought he was? You can go back and listen to our, our, the sermon that we did a few years ago on, uh, on John 21, unpacking the, rec the reclaiming of Peter by Jesus. And we're going to come back to that in a second. There were always false prophets among the people, and there will always be false teachers among you and false witnesses. Do you see why the Apostle Peter wants us to know the truth? To actually know it, to know what the gospel says. One is so that we can live this abundant life of godliness and meaning. And one is because he knows there will be false teachers. And we've got to be prepared to stand strong against their teaching. What will they be doing? They will be secretly working. This feels malicious. The I get it and you don't. The pride the, uh, or, or pleasure, that what, what makes me feel good, and, and they're going to push this, and we're going to unpack this more because the rest of this passage is about their motivations here. But it's, that's how, what gets people caught up in heresies is, is when they start to feel this way, like, oh, I'm, I get it. I finally, after 2,000 years, I finally have gotten this and unpacked this in a way no one else can. And by the way, it's wild to me that, that Peter says, they will be among you. It's, it's just going to happen. They're always going to be there. We don't have to be afraid. They're going to be there. This kind of language, Jesus used it twice, and it struck me, so I'll just comment. In John 16, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have trouble. Trials, tribulations, same Greek word. You will, in, in the world, you will have trouble. I think he's right. Anybody else would say that's right? I mean, anybody like, why is there always something? You ever had that emotion? Like, things are going well. Oh, of course, right. There's always something. Yeah, in the world, you will have trouble. He's not going to protect us from that. But take heart, I've overcome the world. He also says it about the poor in Matthew 26, 11. You will always have the poor with you, but you'll not always have me. Jesus knows that he's going to be crucified and, and resurrected and ascend into heaven. And he's not going to be physically there in their presence, but the poor will always be there. I don't think this is some weird prophecy. I think this is just because Jesus knows us. Isn't it wild to consider that in today's era, when there's plenty of calories to feed everyone in the world, plenty of calories to feed everyone 
in the world. I told my kids that the true measure of opulence of, of wealth is calories. Only in recent times has it been dollars. Throughout most of human history, it's been calories. I said the, the evidence of all that you need to see about how Western society, how wealthy we are, is Halloween. Think about how many calories we hand out for free on Halloween. Millions and mil to, to chubby children <laughs> that come to our door dressed up like Kung Fu Panda, and we're, and we're like, you know what you need, kid, is, some, is a basket full of calories, right? I, I told, we stopped on the walking one of those days, and I looked down at this basket, I was like, there's like four million calories in that bag, and I'm going to end up eating half of them, you know, <laughs> the dad tax. But this is a, and here's the deal. We still have poor people in the world. How is that? It is because we are a broken and fallen race. Someone always gets in the way of feeding people. There's always some evil person that's keeping us from feeding their people. Or it's, just, it's ridiculous that we are there. I, think, I don't know how much prophecy this is as much as Jesus going, listen, I know you people. You're never going to love each other sufficiently to feed everybody. It's just not going to happen. There will always be poor among you. Maybe. What they bring about is destructive heresies, divisive and wrong. We'll talk about that in a second. They deny the master who bought them. They bring upon themselves swift destruction. This word destruction is going to appear six times in 2 Peter. Peter takes this very seriously. The language here is very harsh. And yet, may I show you something about my Savior? This is amazing. Even denying the master who bought them. Think about that. They're going to be denying the master who bought them. When we went through John, we kept running into this question, who is this God? Who is this? Who does this? When you're God, who says, you know what, I'm going to go spend a few decades in all of the muck and mire that it means to be a fleshly being. That sounds like fun. I'm going to not, not only know about sickness, I'm going to experience it. Exhaustion, frailty, pain, death, torturous death. I'm going to go spend a few decades and experience that stuff. Who does that? What kind of God does that? What kind of a God sees that we can't make it to him, so he's going to come to us and then drag everyone to the cross? Who does that? I don't do that. You don't do that. This, this picture of someone who would, who would be a God like this, who comforts Pontius Pilate during his own illegal trial. Who does that? Nobody does that. Who would die for someone who is going to be a false teacher about you? Who would do that? What kind of a God does that kind of thing? See, you're kind of stuck here with this passage. That either you have believers... Who are, who are proclaiming false, destructive heresies and who then experience swift destruction. Or, Christ, in fact, died for everyone, even false teachers. Who does that? That's an extraordinary grace that is beyond us. This is why the gospel is offensive, because we wouldn't have come up with that. Only he can. That's a shocking concept, that he would die and purchase even those who are his false teachers. Verse 2, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. 
So this is the question Peter's going to point out. He's going to draw a line between the knowledge of the abundant life and godliness or sensuality. Sensuality is not inherently evil. It's just about the senses, what feels good and what brings us pleasure and positive feelings. But which one of those is going to lead is the question. Sensuality is not evil, but it can't ever, it's not ever supposed to have the position of leadership. It's not supposed to be God in our life. What I accept as true, is that what's going to lead me? Or what I want to feel, is that what's going to lead me? I want to feel pleasure in a certain way. I want to feel acceptance no matter what I choose to celebrate. No matter what I choose in my life, I want to feel acceptance from you. That's my sensuality. No matter what I choose, I want to be unhindered by responsibilities. I don't want to have to make responsible decisions. I just want those, responsible, those irresponsible decisions to have no consequences. That's what I want. No matter, hor- no matter what horrible things I want to do to feel these things, that's what I want to do. The way of truth is blasphemed, based in greed and exploitativeness. We're going to unpack that in just a second. Allow them to do what they want to do anyway. It's amazing how often that is the case. When a new theology or a new innovative biblical insight, shockingly, and I know you're shocked by this, ends up defending what the person wanted in the first place. You ever run into that? Somebody has something they want to do, so they go to the Scriptures to see what the Scripture says about it. Isn't it amazing how often the Bible ends up backing what it was they wanted to do in the first place? Almost as if there's a higher authority. This leads us into what's called a heresy. A heresy just means a chosen thing, like a school of thought. Destructive heresies. It's come to mean something that divides, an untruth that divides. That you've, ex- you've, you've moved into a school of thought. You've got a rabbi that's different from this rabbi. You've, got a, you've changed the gospel and you have your own school of thought and you're trying to convince other people to it as well. And then the word blasphemy, which those are two words that get tossed around a lot. Blasphemy is also in this passage. That just means abusive speech. It literally means it's the two Greek words evil plus speech. Uh, to defame, to revile. Um, that kind of stuff. So Peter, listen to this. this. To summarize this little section, I want you to listen. Imagine this. Okay, so Peter is making the claim inspired by the Holy Spirit. Check this out. That people will reject God as the source of truth and instead choose their own feelings as the source of truth and in doing so are going to choose absurd and abusive beliefs. That's his claim. Now, do you see why people throw out this book as outdated? I mean, clearly that has nothing to do with our day and age now, right? That's not a a problem we face nowadays. I I said in the first service, I feel like Peter was watching YouTube this week and then wrote this. (laughs) Like just, just this week. The early church had to deal with heresies like Gnosticism already. Humans that taught that humans have this divinity from within that can be accessed by special knowledge. Or Sabellianism, the fact that there's, there's only one God, but he, and he has three modes, but there's not three persons. Or, or polytheism, the idea that there are three or more gods out there. Those are heresies that the early church engaged with and debated and discussed, and various views that rejected the idea that Jesus was God. Some of these are still found in modern denominations and cults. But honestly, I don't know that they pose much of a threat to the church as a whole anymore. Those aren't the ones that are crippling us, that are undermining us. We don't have churches slipping into those versions of heresy very much. No, in fact, what we're seeing now is worldliness, is the celebration and worship of the world, of the approval of the world, of the perspective of the world. A main one, and John Redford was to mention this in our discussion this week, is the perversion of the word love. 
We have perverted this word. If you love someone, then you approve of what they do, according to the modern perversion of that word. And there are times when that's actually the exact opposite of what love means. The exact opposite. Love means I should get to do whatever I want. Hey, I hate to break it to you, but typically love means you don't get to do what you want. That's what love means. That's why it's called charity in the, new, in, in the King James of translating to charity. It's a gift that you give. It struck me as funny the first time I saw one of these um, one of these messages, you know, one of these placards or whatever that like, I should be able to love whoever I want to type of thing. And you're like, well, of course you should. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's straight from the Bible, right? We're supposed to love your enemies. You should love everybody. And then you realize, oh, oh, you don't mean love. You mean a different thing than love. You don't mean love. You mean the other thing. There's something else you think you should be able to do with anyone you want, not love. I hate to break it to you, but by definition, loving somebody may mean you don't do those kind of things with them. That you choose something best for them or better for them than just our own sensuality. Verse 3 begins to unpack this even more. And their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. This, this word, exploit, is meant to be insulting for those of us who buy into this. If you buy into these false teachings, if you buy into these false prophets, then, then here's the, the word exploit there implies trafficking. Like with slaves or beasts. That's the idea. Their language here implies that the, the idea of, of a slave market. But the picture here says, listen, I've got this heresy and I'm going to traffic you. I'm going to sell you to this heresy, and I'm going to come out ahead. This is just another expression of worldliness, that I'm going to gain the approval or wealth. What's wild is one of the main ways that that has found its way into the church is through this false teaching about wealth, that somehow wealth equals godliness. This could not be more absurd. It's, it's anyone who proclaims this, it's like they lost their Bible at some point. They've invented a whole new religion. We, 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 were quoting about, uh, we were quoting from one of the Psalms earlier about this idea of idols. And it, it struck me that, man, we wish, we wish our idols were made out of gold and silver. Our, our idols aren't even backed by gold or silver anymore. They still, have no ma- they still have mouths but don't speak, and they have eyes and don't see, and they have ears and don't hear. And we're, how, how, what, how humorous that must be for Satan to be like, yeah, I don't even have to give them gold and silver anymore. They're doing it for paper now. Paper backed by a government that has more debt than it has money. <laughs> that ought to work. Like you just have this whole like, how did we buy into that this is, and this has infected the church in painful ways. That what makes a person successful in the faith is how many of these they have. How much of this they have. That is a heresy. It is a divisive heresy and it's probably blasphemy against the actual message. We don't buy into that. The idea that someone would get up and say, hey, I've got this heresy, I'm going to sell not it to you, you to it. And when you buy into it, I get ahead. I financially am blessed. I, don't, it doesn't, I, I think biblically financial blessing is, is almost neutral. Like, eh, whatever. What are you doing with it? That's what matters. That's the measure of success. What are you doing with it? Well, I have a bunch. Don't care. What are you doing with it? I don't have hardly anything. Don't care. What are you doing with it? That's, Jesus is only impressed by money once, and it's when someone gives noth, almost nothing to the temple. That's the idea. This, I, you can see why Peter's wrapped up in this. Galatians 6 says this. 
The Apostle Paul says, let one Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he reap. And the one who sows to his own flesh will from flesh reap corruption. The one who sows in the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. I would love to say that the first thing that jumped to my mind with this concept of, of the condemnation from long ago is not idle, that there was some Bible passage that jumped to my mind, but it wasn't quite a Bible passage. It's close, it's C.S. Lewis, um, and that's about, as, in the evangelical world, that's as close as you can get, right? <laughs> it was from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Now, for those of you who have not read it, I'm going to, sorry to, spoiler alert here, but I would love to, um, I'd love to encourage you to read it. Um, and if you're not a good reader, become a reader and read it. And if you just still won't, you can watch the movie. It's not bad. Um, but there's this idea that, that Aslan, the Christ figure, is going up against um, the, the white witch. And, and they're, they're going toe-to-toe. It's near the end of the storyline. And, and they're, they're, they're talking about what are the consequences of Aslan turning himself over to her in exchange for a guilty person. And, and she starts dictating terms to him. You could tell, and they do this well in the movie as well, but you can tell she thinks, I've got the upper hand here, right? All the cards are on my side of the table. I've got the upper hand. And she starts patronizing Aslan. She starts talking down to him like he's a child and starting to explain some rules to him. And they do it pretty well in the movie when Aslan roars and says, Do not cite the deep magic to me, witch. I was there when it was written. This is the old condemnation that's been around for a long time. It's on its way. Later, when Aslan explains it, he's asked to explain that. And here's how he explains it. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation should have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. See, what we're going to uncover here in Second Peter, Peter's going to point out that it isn't that God is being slow. He's not asleep. He's being patient. He is holding back his judgment and wrath but it won't wait forever. Judgment is patient by choice. It's not merely asleep. The commentaries notice that the opposite of sleep in the Greek mindset isn't awake. It is on watch. You're either a soldier who is on watch or you're asleep, and judgment is on watch. God sees and He knows. It watches. And for our sake, it waits. Maybe your sake. If you've not put your faith in a God who loves enough to hate injustice, who loves enough to provide a way out for us so that we're not on the wrong side of injustice, who even if you've been a false teacher died for you, there's no sin you've committed that his, his payment does not overcome. If, you, if that's you and you say, you know what, I need to accept that free gift, we would love for you to do that today. If you need to come up here in a second to pray about whatever, anything, or over in the corner, we'd love for you to do that. This time of invitation that we have at the end of each service is not just a traditional little thing that we do because we're Baptist or something. It's meant to be a few minutes 
to, before you move off into the rest of your day, to focus some attention on what God is saying to you, how God is speaking to you, what applications He is drawing to your mind. The assumption is that that's there. If it's salvation, that you want to put your faith in Him, come on. If it is you've been through our Welcome Home team and you're ready to join our dysfunctional family, we invite you to come do that as well. If you need to pray for any reason, I pray that you are listening. If you will, stand with me, and I'll close out our time before we sing or respond however the Spirit leads. This is from Ephesians 4. Paul's letter to the Ephesians to encourage them on some of these very same matters. And he, being Jesus, gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part of this working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. The very words of God.